The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to a slightly new format for the Spectators Edition podcast. We're going to be talking about the magazine as per usual, but we're going to try to give a little bit more insight into the thought process behind putting the world's oldest weekly magazine to bed. I'm William Moore, the Spectators Features Editor. And I'm Lara Prendergast, the Spectators Executive Editor. So... Lara, this week our cover story is about how NATO is preparing to defend itself against the possibility of a, a future Russian invasion. How do we come up with the cover this week? Well, Max Jeffrey, who is our assistant foreign editor, has, has recently been up in Estonia on, on the border with Russia. He's joined the NATO troops in their preparation for what what would happen if, if Russia were to invade. So he, he was alongside British, French, American and Estonian soldiers as they were rehearsing what the what the tactics would be. Um, it's not necessarily the most encouraging piece because yes. what, what Max points out is that, well, it's quite an old type of fighting, but it's a type of fighting that a lot of these soldiers haven't really done recently, which is fighting in very cold, difficult conditions. And he says, there's a part where he says that a lot of the equipment isn't working, the engines aren't starting, guns aren't shooting. So it's not necessarily the most reassuring piece, but Mm. Max does a very good job, I think, of painting a picture of the kind of fears um, within the military right now of of what might happen and and just the kind of preparations that are are going on. And we spoke to Max as well as Mark Galliotti earlier about, about the piece. Mark is a historian and a security expert and author of Putin's Wars. Max, Could you start by telling us about the drills that you saw last week? So what are they up to? So what's going on in Estonia are a set of exercises that they call winter camp. They're not directly related to these big exercises that you may have seen in the news called Steadfast Defender, which is where 90,000 troops from across the alliance are coming to Europe to rehearse Russian invasion. This is specifically practising for a Russian invasion of Estonia. And they are in the snow in minus 20 degrees. And it's Estonian, British, French and American troops trying to see how they would combat the Russians. So in some cases, they are mimicking their tactics. But in some cases, they're just pitting pitting their forces against each other, working out how each other fight, trying out their equipment in the extreme cold. They use lasers, not real bullets. And it's kind of a very strange experience to be there. And what's the verdict, do you think? Do you think, did you feel um, reassured by, by uh, what you saw? Or do you think there's a sense of underpreparedness? A lot of thought is going into these exercises. And, I, and being there, you can't quite get a sense of, in terms of the military tactics, how ready they are for combat. The soldiers always say that they really are. They could fight yesterday, is, the, is what they always like to say. But there's other parts of Western military preparedness that I don't think are quite there yet. The arms industry isn't producing enough ammunition. We don't have enough air defences. And these plans, while are all well and good, they seem very detailed. You always run the risk, if you're planning for a war, of actually planning for the previous one and not for the one that's coming. Mark, the whole premise NATO is preparing for is that Russia could invade a NATO country next, probably going via Baltic state. How seriously do you think that threat should be taken? 
to be perfectly honest, I'm I'm a little bit more relaxed than some some of the, the commentary at. Look, I think first of all we have to appreciate that we're talking about a potential that would be a after the Ukraine war and b after years of forced reconstitution by the Russians. Now that makes perfect sense that, that military planners are thinking in these terms because quite frankly, military planning has to operate on five, ten plus year cycles because that's how long it takes to bring in a new weapon system or whatever else. But, you know, realistically speaking, we're talking about something that could happen if Russia does okay, at least in Ukraine, which no great signs of it doing so, so far. And secondly, if Russia is willing and able to spend years dumping equivalent amounts of money into a massive armament program. So, I mean, I think this, this is in part precautionary. This is in part because that's what soldiers do. They have to think of the worst plausible scenario. And it's also in part political in that particularly countries like Estonia, they really want to highlight the Russian threat because they really want to ensure that there is continued support for Ukraine. Max, you spoke to some former NATO officials who seem to rather agree with, with Mark's analysis there that don't believe that a Russian invasion would actually happen, or at least it's very unlikely to happen. So what do they say, say to you? They were saying that they think that crossing the Article 5 line is very, very different to invading Ukraine and actually, invading Ukraine is very, very different to invading other countries that Russia shares a border with. Russia has said for a long time that it thinks it has some sort of historic claim to that land. And these former NATO officials, so I spoke to Philip Breedlove, um, who, was, um, who commanded NATO's military operations for a while. And he said he thinks it's very unlikely. And it's the same from Lord George Robertson, who was the only living former British Secretary General of NATO. He said that crossing the Article 5 line would be Armageddon. And I think he's probably right, to be honest. But as Mark says, NATO's whole reason for being is to prepare for, really, is to prepare for this sort of thing. And so it does matter if it's ready for conflict or if it's not. And Mark, do you think there's a risk that this further round of drills and further kind of militarisation in a way becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and that it then taps into Russia's insecurity on, on that particular front? To be honest, I think that uh, ship really has, has sailed, or indeed if it was a Black Sea fleet, sunk, <laughs> in the sense that look, when it comes down to it, there was a time when there could still be a case to be made that there was scope for a positive relationship between Russia and the West. And at that point, absolutely, it, you know, arguably, one we, we could have done a lot better job of demonstrating that NATO did not represent any kind of a threat. I mean, I don't think we can, we can sort of blame this war on NATO expansion or any other nonsense that goes around. But nonetheless, it, it is clear that that was the case. Now, though, look, like it or not, we are already in a kind of war with Russia. Certainly, that's what Putin says. And it only takes one to make a war. You know, as far as he's concerned, that the economic sanctions are really economic warfare and that Russia is already in, in, in this kind of proxy conflict with, with, with NATO in Ukraine. So I think, to be perfectly honest, at the, at the risk of sounding uncharacteristically hawkish, I think this is a point where, in fact, NATO needs to actually demonstrate its capabilities. And clearly, look, this matters particularly for a country like Estonia. You know, this is a country which is right on Russia's border, which has a substantial population of ethnic cultural Russians, and which has a total population about half the size of Birmingham. In that case, you really need to have the full support of NATO to back you up, to give you that kind of degree of security. So I, th I think we, we are on a point where actually containment by de deterrence 
is really the best way of ensuring peace. And to that end, yes, absolutely, NATO needs to show its its capacities, and indeed a lot of European countries in particular need to get more, rather more serious about spending the necessary amounts of money on defence. And, and what do you think might change if, if we do see Donald Trump returning to the White House? Look, predicting anything to do with Donald Trump is always a, a, a difficult task, to, to say the least. I think it's worth noting that look, you know, Putin has just said that, in fact, oh, he, he prefers dealing with, with Biden than, than Trump. Now, that might just simply be a little bit of uh, messing with the Russians, with the Americans' minds and trying to protect Trump from being accused of being too useful an asset for Putin. But there is a little degree of truth in that. In that the thing about Trump is that he's deeply unpredictable. So although, yes, at the moment, he's, he's making all kinds of noises about wanting to sort of impose some kind of deal on Ukraine and that NATO countries that don't spend their the requisite amount of money, he would he would be quite happy to see the Russians invade them or the like. But apart from the fact that actually the countries that Russia borders on all do spend their 2% of GDP or more on defence, you know, unless we can actually imagine some kind of amphibious assault on Belgium, you know, this is not really something that's likely to happen. But at the same time, we have to realise that Trump historically has demonstrated that he says all kinds of wild things. Once he's in office, he's often unwilling or unable to spend the political capital to actually do very much. So in some ways, ironically, the fear of Trump and the fear of what Trump may mean is, in fact, pushing a lot of European countries to get more serious about defence, whereas previously they were perfectly happy to freeload on the United States. Max, did you get a sense while you were out in Estonia that NATO forces are worried about a Trump presidency? They say publicly that they're not, and actually even privately they say that they're not. They say that Congress now has a veto and says that Trump can't unilaterally now pull America out of NATO. And they also don't think that there's a desire there. They say actually that there was a lot of engagement um, with NATO from the last administration. I think things like the recent suggestions from Trump's team, one Trump advisor saying that there could be a tiered scheme in NATO where people who pay more get more protections. I imagine that might worry people. But then again, this is just a camp. This could easily be campaign talk. Philip Breedlove, when I spoke to him, said it was rough last time, but NATO got through it. But then you speak to some former Trump officials and they'll say, we were nice last time and we didn't get enough. Wait and see what we'll do next time. Mark, just, just finally, where does where does China feature in all of this? I mean, some American analysts seem more concerned about war in Taiwan, for example, and, and the US's ability to defend um, the island. So how do you assess China's role in all of this? I mean, China is paradoxically central and absent. I mean, it is central in the sense that if there is some major conflict around Taiwan or the like, that will clearly have a, a massive distorting effect on American interests and thus, by extension, NATO. You know, again, whether or not we'd actually see you know, other NATO forces being deployed, I mean, Britain already sort of has, has made moves in that direction, we'll, we'll wait and see. But nonetheless, you know, if America is looking towards the South China Sea or whatever, then it limits the amount of resources available in, in Europe. So on that level, it is potentially central. But at the same time, NATO itself is essentially a European alliance with friends, large friends. And so, I mean, in that respect, certainly when you look at the kind of plans that are taking place, I mean, Chris Cavoli, the Supreme Allied Commander Europe, the, the US general who's in charge of all NATO forces in, in theatre, he looks like your archetypal gung-ho American commander. He's actually a very thoughtful strategic thinker. 
And it is clear from the kind of strategy that he's adopting is that it is absolutely focused on the on the notion that from the moment, the only kind of adventurous power, the only power that might make take some stupid risks, frankly, is Russia. So on that level, China isn't featuring at all. Mark and Max, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Well, what else did you enjoy in the magazine this week? There's quite a few things. At the risk of being horribly sycophantic, uh, I'm going to say that, Lara, you wrote an extremely good column for the magazine this week on male grooming, uh, male, be- <laughs> male, male beauty and kind of extension of vanity to men. Were there any tips, Will, that you, you particularly found helpful? I thought all of it may as well have been written in Mandarin as far as... Uh, <laughs> As far as I, I could relate to it. But that's kind of why I liked it. I sort of, it sort of was very funny, I thought. And um, the, the one that I did think actually did make me pause for thought was right at the end when you say that not just men, but men and women should all wear sun cream, much more sun cream, to prevent themselves. Uh, well, what does it prevent, actually? You can tell me. Well, I mean, it's, it prevents damage to your skin, but there are obviously very high rates of skin cancer in this country. So it's something that I think... But do you wear um, sun cream every day, then? I do. I think it's because my, my mother grew up in New Zealand and then uh, the Antipodeans are very strict on all of this stuff because of, I guess, because of the hole in the ozone layers. Uh, that was the original reason. But they, they're very careful about sun sun cream down there. I quite literally um. never, <laughs> never wear sun cream. <laughs> Absolutely never. Well, hopefully well, this, this column will encourage you to yeah. do so. What about you, Laura? What do you like? There's a piece by a writer called G.V. Chappell. He's, he's writing for The Spectator for the first time in this week's issue, his father was one of the Brinks match um, robbers. Well, actually, he wasn't a robber. He was one of the men involved in then redistributing the gold, should we say, afterwards. And G.V. Chapel is writing about what it was like growing up in his shadow, which is interesting because it's not something you you generally hear about the children of criminals and the effect that it has on their life. And he, and he says... You know, I sometimes wonder what life would have been like had Brinks Matt not happened. He does also say that being the offspring of a notorious criminal isn't all bad. There's a certain glamour attached to it. But I think he kind of it's, it's a sort of reflective piece on on how it affected his family. They they ended up losing a lot because of it. And but also his father's sort of kind of stoicism, I suppose, in mm. the face of everything that then toppled down on him. So mm. I, I particularly enjoyed that piece. There's one more piece I'd like to mention now, which is the diary for this week, which is done by Harry Mount, the editor of The Oldie. And it's just a really good, funny, witty, well-written diary with lots and lots of great sort of nuggets in it. Uh, My favourite bit, which we're going to hear a clip from now, which is when Harry recounts a meeting between two great figures of culture, Barry Humphreys and John Lennon, uh, which happened in 1964. And this extraordinary clash of ego between the two men. And let's have a listen to that now. The cartoonist Nick Garland, a spectator regular, co-created legendary Australian Barry McKenzie with Barry. Nick's also on the Radio 4 programme. He told me of an extraordinary dinner party held at Peter Cook's house in 1964. Nick, Barry, Peter and John and Cynthia Lennon were there. They started to play a game where they were all excessively polite to each other. Oh, I understand you're a famous singer in a very popular group, Barry said to Lennon. Oh, and I understand you're an extremely funny Australian, Lennon responded. And then suddenly the game turned nasty as their latent competitiveness emerged and they started trading insults at lightning speed. I thought one of them might hit somebody, said Nick. We had our baby Emily there in a bassinet 
I instinctively moved between her and the three men. Just as it was getting out of hand, Cynthia Lennon shouted, Stop it, John! They immediately switched back to polite chit-chat, as if nothing had happened. That was Harry Mount, the editor of The Oldie. This week's magazine also features a fascinating column by Lionel Shriver about the case of a mother being convicted for her son carrying out a school shooting. It's something of a landmark case in America, and I suppose for Lionel, having written, obviously, we need to talk about Kevin. It's, it's a subject which mm. she, she, has, she has written about before for us, um, but she has returned to this week. And we spoke to Lionel earlier about her column. I started by asking her to set out the facts of the case. Yes, this is about a school shooting that took place in 2021. Um, It was a 15-year-old kid who brought a gun to school and shot and killed four students and then injured seven others. It was in Michigan. And that's depressingly standard, as we know. That's That's not an especially exciting story. But in a first of its kind case, uh, the prosecutors not only uh, brought the kid himself to trial and, and he was tried as an adult and given life without parole, so we won't be seeing him for a while, like ever. But the prosecutor also decided to charge the parents. And uh, as I note in the column, it is not uh, at all unusual to bring parents to book in a civil suit because most of the U.S. states allow for suing parents for monetary damages when their children commit crimes and you've been the victim. So, I mean, for example, if your child was driving your car and got in an accident and injured someone, then you can ask for money, though these laws usually limit the amount of money that you can get out of the suit. So, It's not completely unheard of to call parents to account for the results of their children's actions. But this was a criminal trial. And that means that the parents, and they're both both being tried. The father has yet to be tried. They are being tried separately. They They are being charged as criminally culpable. And the the mother tried first, was just last week found guilty by a jury of of being criminally responsible for those four murders that her her son committed. And uh, each of those murder convictions carries uh, up to a 15-year sentence. So if you add, if, if they're not served concurrently, which they are often but if they were not to be conser- served concurrently, that could add up to 60 years in prison. And she didn't kill anybody. Are you worried about the precedent it sets? Why restrict uh, the idea of criminal responsibility through parental negligence? Why restrict it to school shootings? I mean, why not robberies or you know, sexual assaults and so on? Well, exactly. I mean, the logic of it is that you are criminally responsible for... Uh, when your child breaks the law and you can go to prison if they misbehave. And, you know, the prosecutor in this case, I think a little peculiarly stated very clearly that uh, he was trying to send a message to parents more broadly 
in order to to reduce the frequency of school shootings in particular. But but that that logic extends to anything that your kid does. And as <laughs> as I note in the column, I mean, the last thing we no- need right now is uh, you know with a quite a reduced birth rate to scare off potential parents because they're going to be criminally responsible for anything their kid gets up to. <laughs> it's slightly alarming. You talk, Lionel, in your piece, obviously having written um, a very well-known novel about a, a high school shooting, you talk about Jennifer Crumbly, the mother, and you talk about her character and how she was portrayed. How did you feel when you were kind of reading about the trial? What, what, did you, what was your sense of, of how she was being portrayed in, in the media? I think the media was quite unfair to her, often quite cruel. You know, she's overweight. Uh, she's very nervous. Uh, she gets heavily flushed, which is not a good look. But, you know, every mother is not going to be photogenic. And that's not a requirement of, of parenthood. Uh, furthermore, she was grilled on everything, how many holidays she took with her kid, how much time she spent with her horses, how much money she spent on her horses, everything from, you know, helping the kid with his homework or or what parent wants to be put literally in the dock for their parenting practices and, and, you know, to have the prosecutor actually track her movements on her phone as to, you know, how, how, how long she spent in the stable in an average week. I mean, that, I mean, that also sets a terrible precedent. No parent is perfect. Parents always fall down on the job. It's an impossible job, you know, and, and most parents do the best they can, and it doesn't always work out. So in writing, we need to talk about Kevin. I was very sympathetic with this mother, despite the fact that she wasn't a great mother, and she's She's, she confesses as much. She basically failed to bond with her son and started forming a dislike for him. Uh, and that wouldn't have had an improving effect on him. So, but, you know, I don't think that this is a legal matter. Certainly when it came to the child's access to a handgun, that's a legal matter. Uh, unfortunately, in this particular case, Michigan doesn't have a law, which a lot of other states have, which demands that you secure firearms in your home. Usually it means locking them up in some way or putting them in a safe. And I think that the family would have failed that test. They had the the handgun that the kid used in a locked case, but the key was just in a beer stein on a shelf on the wall. And the kid clearly knew where the key was. So if that law had been in place, I think they would have fairly been convicted of that. I think that's a sign that, you know, beforehand, nobody thinks their kid is going to be a high school shooter. So you worry about hiding a key from an intruder, but you don't necessarily think that you're going to have to hide a gun from your own child. And one of the problems with the whole approach of the prosecution in this case was just that kind of cheap hindsight reasoning. Because, you know, you look at all these terrible clues and they seem to add up to this inexorable endpoint. So that, of course, it was foreseeable 
that this child was unstable and was going to end up taking a gun to school and shooting his classmates. But that that isn't fair because beforehand, nothing looks inevitable and lots of behavior, lots of little clues could have been could have been nothing. Maybe the kid had a bad day, you know, it's, and there are lots of other children who exhibit the same behavior or, you know, write alarming things in their school assignments. And, and it's nothing but an exercise of the imagination or blowing off steam. So in fact, there was a period, especially in the early 2000s, when um, the U.S. was especially hysterical about school shootings. It was after Columbine, which was 1999. And the enforcement of what we now call pre-crime was quite vicious. And kids were being expelled from school for just writing a, an unpleasant poem. Or honestly, there was one case where a kid took a chicken bone and pointed at someone in the cafeteria and said, bang, 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 and he was expelled. Do you think some of the hostile... Uh, media reaction, does it come from the same kind of uh, instinct as when there are stories in the media about parents whose small children have either been kidnapped or have, have, have died when they're meant to be looking after them? And they often are the, they often are the target of a lot of, sort of media uh, attacks. And does it come from this instinct perhaps of, well, it, it can never happen to my child because I'm a good parent? Uh, unlike this, say, sort of monsterized figure you're hearing about in the media as almost a protective instinct against your yourself. I think that's well observed. I think there is a, a, a desire to distance yourself from this person and therefore it couldn't be you. And they were the bad parent and that and therefore this bad thing happened to them. They deserved it because because they spent too much time on their horses. And you're the good parent and you're responsible and therefore that responsibility will net uh, you know a good kid who never goes wrong. And unfortunately Parenthood is not that mathematical. Lionel, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you. And finally, we got this brilliant piece by the novelist and travel writer Sean Thomas, all about the creepy places he stayed in, often by accident. These include hotels that used to be asylums or prisons, and he writes about the phenomenon of the haunted hotel. We spoke to Sean and Judith Blinko, the owner of the Mermaid Inn in Rye, which is often called the most haunted hotel in the UK. Sean, let's start with your own experience. You write from a hotel in Cambodia, which you say is haunted. Can you tell us a bit about your experience there? Well, first I should say it's a very nice hotel. It's a luxurious <laughs> old colonial place in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. I was drinking a very nice cocktail by the pool and I suddenly felt myself dip into this weird, dark mood. I mean, a really strange, you know, a dismal, gloomy vibe. And given that I was in a luxurious hotel, not paying for the cocktail, I kind of thought that's kind of inexplicable. And then a friend of mine online said, well, you know, you're in Cambodia, it has a very dark history. And also maybe that hotel, given that I'm a travel writer and I've stayed in a lot of hotels, I suddenly thought, yeah, Maybe there is a backstory here. Maybe this hotel has a mood, has a history, has a psychogeography, which can, you know, which can kick off certain moods in the guests. Because I've experienced that before. And what, what is, what is the backstory? Anyway, this particular, this particular hotel, I don't want to identify it because I'll never host me again. But <laughs> um, it's, 
a lot of famous journalists stayed here in the 70s during just prior and during the Khmer Rouge takeover. And, you know, they saw terrible things. I mean, most people know the history of the Khmer Rouge was not good, but it was particularly brutal in Phnom Penh. And it was so bad, it made the journalist John Swain weep about it three decades later in a documentary. I mean, he's a hardened war journalist and a great writer. So if he's crying about it, it's got to be pretty bad. And Judith, I would love to bring you into this conversation because your inn, the Mermaid Inn in Rye, is often called the most haunted in the UK. What is so spooky about it? I mean, I've worked here for 40 years. And during the course of that time, we, we have 31 rooms. And it's always the same six rooms people see things in. And uh, I haven't got it written down or, you know, it's, it's sort of hidden. And it is bizarre. I mean, I might, I might be outside weeding or doing something and a couple will walk past and they'll be saying, oh, you move something, you move something. And I think, oh, I know you, you stayed in room one. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just one of those weird things. But if you think the cellars are 900 years old, the building itself is 600 years old. If there's going to be a bit of, you know, lurking, whatever, it's, you know, it's going to be here. I actually have stayed in your lovely hotel. In right, and I can't say I didn't see any, you know, headless people or knights in armor. But I did have a terrible row with my then girlfriend. <laughs> Bad enough for me to remember it two decades later. I had a few. Oh my gosh! So you know, maybe there was some sort of weird, afflicting vibe. I don't know. Yes, and and um, Judith, do you find that there are guests that are attracted to the idea of being in a uh, a possibly yeah, I mean, haunted? We get we get requests all the time for sort of paranormal groups to come around and such like what we do now just to sort of try and calm that is to have uh, when we close for a week in January I just say right any groups that want to come in they can I'll give them a pass key they can do what they want I just don't want to know (laughs) go wherever you like (laughs) and then that's sort of over and done with for for another year and and so on so people tend to book year on year when they know we're going to close and then as I say it's one less thing I have to worry about (laughs) And Sean, you, you mentioned earlier the phrase psychogeography. And the, one of the points that you make in your piece is that whether or not you believe in hauntings or, or the supernatural, it may well be the case that people behave certain ways in buildings that they feel to be haunted. I mean, what do you make of that argument that the kind of response to it is is, is indicative of something? Well, it's, it's a more materialist, rationalist explanation for things like hauntings. A certain place. Imagine a house in a street where there's a terrible murder. For a few years after the murder, people will know the actual facts. There was a murder there. But then in human nature, the facts will get forgotten, but the, but the emotions evoked will remain. They'll get handed on. So, the, so the, the reputation of a place will persist over a much longer time, causing a certain mood around a certain area. And you can see it famously in places in London. There's a place called Gin Lane in Hoban, Covent Garden area, painted by Hogarth. It was notoriously horrible and squalid and dangerous. And even now... It's a weirdly run-down part of central London, surrounded by really opulent parts of London. This little corner has this mood, and even now, property prices are low. Hmm. Actually, Judith, I was going to ask you, do, are you ever worried that it may become too haunted and people won't want to stay there? It was quite funny, actually. Um, there was an article written about us, and we actually had it framed and put on the wall in reception. And someone came in, read it, screamed, went and sat back in the car and refused to come in. So you, you have to sort of have a balance there. That's why we don't put like the ghost stories on our on our um, website or anything like that. So we write them down and if anyone asks a co- for a copy, we'll give it to them. But oh, we always joke and say it's a bit of a Dan Brown moment. You say something and then they believe it. Yeah. 
<laughs> are, are there any particular stories that you can tell us now about the Mermaid Inn that, that might kind of lend themselves to why people think it might be haunted? Well, when, when we first bought the hotel, you know, going through the history we could find, the earliest ghost stories is about 1900. And there's a written story about a couple wait, waking up during the night and seeing a sword fight in the corner of the room where one, you know, in, in doublet and hose and one person stabs the other one and the body just sort of disappears through the wall. And the funny thing there is that's actually where the secret passage is in that room. It's got uh, so all the secret passages we've got now we actually use as fire exits. So that would have made sense because there was a bookcase behind there and uh, like a staircase that goes down to the back of the bar. So going back to the six rooms, I've got room one. It's got the oldest bed in the hotel and it's got two old chairs at the end of the bed. So Mr. and Mrs. Boring have gone to bed, but, but taken their clothes off, put them on one chair. And when they wake up in the morning, their clothes are on the other chair. And they will argue and argue and argue the whole of their say, you moved it. No, you moved it. You moved it. And it's not as if we sneak in with a pass key. You know, <laughs> I was about to ask you. <laughs> it's, so it's just, it's just saying that happens time immemorial in that particular room. So they're coincidences and coincidences. But I've never personally had what I'd class a bad feeling in the hotel. And during lockdown, I had to move in for 100 days because um, we weren't insured unless anyone lived on site. And as I say, I never, ever had a bad feeling, whereas I can go up to the local church where I go bell ringing and there's, you've got the first bed of stairs and there's a, like a bridge across. And I almost run across there because all the hairs stand up on my arms and, you know, it's like, ugh, it's a dash it across that bit. But if there's anything here, they like me. I must say, Judith, that is a fantastic premise for a novel, having to spend 100 days of COVID lockdown in a haunted hotel. <laughs> <laughs> But actually, on the point about it being a good premise for a novel, I mean, the point that you make, Sean, is that The Haunted Hotel is a trope of literature, of film. Um, it is, as you say, it definitely is a thing. I mean, do you think that shows that there is there is just something possibly inherently creepy about hotels in the same way there's, there's inherently something quite otherworldly about churches, for example? Uh, yeah, as I mentioned in the piece, I mean, there's something about the hotel and its intrinsic transience. Um, you know, mysterious people come and go, and they check in and they check out. And in a way, that's like life reduced to a sort of concentrated form. You know, mm. People appear in our lives, and then they disappear. Where did they go? It is that transience and that, and that mysterious quality to everyone around you that can make a hotel particularly spooky, I think. When, you, when you're young, I mean, you, you're brought up on like Scooby-Doo and things like that. So you think, oh, they're yeah. all going into the scary hotel. And then you... Also, also, they have those long corridors, all those doors. Yeah. Yes. And itself, be, you know, kind of scary. And the, the passages and everything. But, and yeah. then you sort of progress to The Shining and then you go and stay in a hotel yourself. So you've got both ends of the scale. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I did stay in a genuinely... Uh, I didn't even mention it in the article, I've got to say, because I'm saving it. <laughs> I stayed in a hotel... <laughs> In Louisiana, which I think was actually haunted. It was terrifying. And I one day I will write about it. And it turned out there was a terrible slave rebellion there. I didn't know this. And where people had their heads stuck on spikes outside and had this awful history. I, I was honestly very, very scared. I mean, that's the only time I've ever felt, my God, supernatural mm. that time. But Judith, what do you believe? Do you believe that, that you know, past terrible events can impact on an environment, can have a lingering emotion? I don't know. I, I like to think that if you've always done good and done the best by something, then they will appreciate that. And I always like to think if there's anything here, they like me because we have tried to, you know, really, really spend so much care and attention looking after the building because it is a living museum. 
we've spent 6.4 million pounds on it now every, every penny we take plows back into keeping it going so i like to think that we've done our bit to sort of try and keep it as it should be i mean i think i got a complaint the other day it's about time you brought it up to the 21st century and i'm thinking you know do your homework <laughs> premiere you know just yeah. you know don't don't give me any grief go go and say somewhere else i hope their clothes were moved during the night <laughs> yes well short and judith thank you very much indeed for joining us thank you laura have you ever been in a haunted hotel to knowledge not that i'm aware of but actually where we were recording this building or queen street there's meant to be a ghost here oh yes there is i can't can you remind me i can't remember the story of the ghost so the story is well that there's um a ghost, Frank Schuster, who was a friend of Edward Elgar and lived here in the early 20th century and used to host lots of parties and do lots of socialising here, which seems kind of appropriate for the spectator ghost. But he is meant to have been seen and actually one of our former marketing directors, I remember she used to she used to say she had seen him upstairs. So, um, Frank, if you're here and joining us in the podcast, <laughs> welcome. Let yourself know to <laughs> Exactly. And that's it for this week. If you've got any thoughts on the new format of the edition that we're trying out, if you love it, if you don't love it, email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk or leave us a review wherever you get your podcast from. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, and we hope you have, why not pick up a copy of the magazine to read everything we've talked about in full? I'm William Moore. And I'm Laura Prendergast, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.